0: Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Adam. It's uh, really good to have you with us this morning as we land the sermon series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Union with Christ. And I'd like to begin this morning by telling you about one of my favourite fictional series of all time, The Lord of the Rings. Now, if you're not familiar with the story somehow, if you maybe you don't like the whole fantasy thing, you have been um, don't have a TV or haven't read the book or whatever it is, if you're not familiar with the story, it's about this powerful ring that is forged by the forces of evil. And they intend to use this ring to uh, rule and to dominate uh, Middle Earth, which is the world in this series. But the ring falls into the hands of a humble hobbit. And the story kind of revolves around this quest to destroy this powerful ring once and for all. And this task is given to a a humble hobbit by the name of Frodo Baggins. And Frodo is accompanied on this quest by his good friend Samwise Gamgee. Now, there's lots of really interesting things about this series, but one of the more fascinating element, I think, is the relationship between Sam and Frodo. Now, to put it simply, Sam is fiercely loyal to Frodo. Sam protects Frodo from all of the enemies that they come across. Sam always makes sure that Frodo has food, even when it means that he will miss out. In short, the quest would have failed without Sam. In fact, there is this climactic scene at the end, and if you haven't seen it, you've had plenty of time, so don't feel bad about spoiling it for you. There's this climactic scene at the end. Both Frodo and Sam have come to Mount Doom, which is the place where the ring needs to be destroyed. They're at the end of their strength. Frodo has collapsed and he's on the ground. And Sam, with, with great courage, picks himself up and he says to Frodo, he says, come on, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you. That's the ring. It's been entrusted to Frodo. But he says, I can carry you. And he picks up Frodo and he takes him where they need to go. And see, the quest, it would have failed without Sam. Frodo needed his loyal companion to help him on this dangerous journey. And this is a common thread in many of the stories that we love, isn't it? I mean, Sherlock Holmes had Dr. Watson. Batman had Robin. Maverick had Goose. Han Solo had Chewbacca and even Shrek had Donkey, my favourite companion actually of all time. He's hilarious. See, when we embark on a dangerous or difficult journey, we need someone beside us to help us along the way. And the reason I tell you this is because it's the same when it comes to our lives. So if we are going to be able to navigate and to make it through the the difficult, arduous, sometimes devastating journey of life in this world, then we need a loyal companion by our side. We need someone who is with us and can help us and can keep us moving forward. And the truth of our union with Christ, of our relationship with Christ, tells us that this is exactly what we have. See, in this series, we've been exploring our relationship to Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are those who have entered into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been talking about how this changes everything about us. If you remember back, we saw that when we enter into a relationship with Christ, we receive a new identity. We're a loved child of God. And this new identity gives us a new horizon, a new destiny for our lives which is to have the image of God restored in us to become the people that God created us to be. And this new horizon gives us a new purpose, a new path in our everyday lives. Last week we saw that this path is to pursue holiness, to become like Christ. But the road is long, isn't it? And the journey can be difficult at times. And so what we need is someone who is by our side, who can help us on this journey journey of life someone who can give us hope when it's dark and life is difficult and the road seems too hard and so union with Christ tells us that this is exactly what we have our relationship with Christ tells us that we are not alone we're not alone in fact one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel and what that means It means God with us. God with us. See, if we are united to Christ, it means we're not alone on this journey of life. It means we have a a loyal companion who is with us by our side. And when we understand this, it gives us hope for our lives and hope for our future. It gives us hope to keep going. And so that's what we're going to be exploring a little bit today how the reality of our relationship with Christ, our union with Christ, gives us hope in our day-to-day lives. And to answer this uh, question or to explore this reality, we need to answer two really important questions. Number one, where is Jesus right now? And number two, what is Jesus doing right now? If we're going to understand how our union with Christ gives us hope in our day-to-day lives, then we need to know the answer to these two questions. Where is Jesus now? And what is Jesus doing right now? So let's look at the first question. Where is Jesus now? Now I wonder if you've ever wrestled with this question before, if you've ever asked yourself this question before. We often talk about where Jesus has been, his life, his death, his resurrection, as we should and as we always will. But have you ever asked yourself, where is Jesus Now, now, if you were to ask the writers of the New Testament this question, they would answer with one voice. They would say, Jesus Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. This is the way we see it put in 1 Peter 3, verse 22, one example of many. Peter, talking about Jesus, says that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Now, there's two parts to this answer, isn't there? And the first is, in heaven. Now, we need to be very clear on what we mean by heaven. Because in the Bible, heaven is not just a place somewhere really, really high up in the sky. You know, when I was a little kid, I used to think that if I could just get above the clouds, then I would see heaven. I'd see thrones and golden pathways and, you know, lots of people chilling on top of the clouds. Let me tell you, I was very, very disappointed when I first went on an aeroplane. I was like, where's heaven? See, heaven its not just somewhere really high in the sky. Heaven is somewhere beyond us. It, It transcends our universe. It's the abode. It's the dwelling place of God. This is why when Jesus taught us to pray to God, he taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. See, heaven is where God is. It's a place totally filled with the glory of God. It's a place where God's will is always done. It's a place from where God rules the world. And this is where Jesus is right now. But not only is Jesus in heaven, he's also, we were told, at God's right hand. Now, in the Bible, the right hand is a symbol of power and authority. To sit at the right hand of a king was to occupy the place of honour and authority. And so for Jesus to be sitting at the right hand of God means that he occupies the place of ultimate honour and ultimate authority. It's the Bible's way of telling us that Jesus is in charge. That Jesus is on the throne and he is ruling the world. This is why before just before he ascended to heaven, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is why Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1 as the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is reigning and ruling from heaven. Now maybe you're thinking, well, Adam, if I look around me, It doesn't look like Jesus is reigning and ruling from heaven. Or if he is, it looks like he's not doing a very good job. You see, the reality is the Bible tells us that with the first coming of Christ, the kingdom of God came from heaven to earth. But it has come not yet in all of its fullness. You see, it's almost as if with the first coming of Christ, God kind of cracked the door open slightly. And we have seen a glimmer of light. We've seen a glimmer of God's glory. But we're still waiting for that day when God will swing wide the door. He'll swing it open completely. And we will see God's light and glory in all of its fullness. And it will flood the universe. But until that day, we have the promise that Christ is reigning and ruling on the throne. And he's working all things towards his good and glorious end. So where is Jesus right now? The Bible tells us that he is in heaven at the right hand of God. And you might be wondering at this point, well, okay, that's nice, Adam, that's nice to think about, that's nice to talk about, and I'm sure it's very important, but how does that change my day-to-day life? How does knowing that that Jesus is in heaven sitting down at the right hand of God, how does that give me hope in my day-to-day life? How does that give me hope in the very real, very difficult things that I'm going through right now? Well, to answer this question, we need to answer our second question, which is what is Jesus doing right now? See, it's not enough just to know where Jesus is right now. We need to know what Jesus is doing right now. And the first thing we need to know is that Jesus is seated. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, look at what we read. We're told to seek the things that are above, that is in heaven, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, why does it matter that Jesus is seated? Why do the biblical authors tell us that Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of God? Well, what this means is this is a visual picture of Jesus' final words from the cross when he said, It is finished. You see, the reason Jesus is sitting down, it's because the work that he came to do from heaven to earth, the work that he came to do is done. It's finished. The work of atoning for our sins is completed. The debt of our sin is paid in full. And so Christ is sitting down. This is the way Hebrews 10 puts it. It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. It's done. Our sin has been paid for totally, fully and completely. And this is why Christ is sitting down. And when this truth really sinks into your heart, when you can have this picture of Jesus before you in your day-to-day life, it fills you with hope, because it frees you from the crushing burden of guilt and shame. It frees you from the up and down of basing your relationship with God on your performance. Christ is seated down. Your sin has been paid for. Your future is assured. Let me explain it to you this way. Last year I read this novel, uh, Atonement. It's a best-selling novel by Ian McEwan. You might have seen the movie adaptation. As always, the book is better. Um, but anyway, th- the story is set in the lead-up to World War II. And it's the story of a 13-year-old girl, uh, an aspiring writer by the name of Breenie. Um, Br- 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 How do you say it? Breenie, that's the one. Got it spelled here. Brain fart. Breenie, she's from an upper English class family. And, and the plot kind of revolves around her witnessing a romantic encounter between her older sister, Cecilia, and a family servant turned friend, Robbie Turner. Unfortunately, later that day, Brini also witnesses a crime, a sexual crime. And her vivid imagination kind of mixes these two events together with tragic consequences. Robbie Turner, an innocent man, is arrested and imprisoned. Now, fast forward five years, and we find Breenie now 18 years old, wracked with guilt. She knows that she has made a terrible mistake, but there's nothing that she can do about it. Now, she tries to atone for her past sins by becoming a nurse and caring for wounded soldiers in World War II, but she knows that she will never make up for what she's done to Cecilia and Robbie. Cecilia's not talking to her. Robbie is now a soldier on the front lines in France. And again, spoiler alert, but the story ends in utter hopelessness. In fact, Brini, now an older lady, she realises that without God, without something beyond herself, atonement for her past is not possible. And the book actually ends with her looking forward to her oncoming dementia, which she has just been diagnosed with, as a means for her to forget what she's done. And you see, Breeny lived her entire life trapped under the guilt of her past. You see, if only she knew the one who had atoned for our sins and sat down. If only she knew his cleansing, his forgiveness, his love. Now let me ask you, what about you? Are you wracked with guilt and shame over your past? Do you feel like there's things you've done that you'll never be able to make up for? You know what? You're right on your own. But Jesus Christ has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. He has once for all atoned for your sins, ascended into heaven and sat down. It's finished. You can't erase what you've done. You can't undo the past. And you might experience some ongoing consequences of what you've done. But you don't have to be defined by it. Because Christ has paid for it. He died for that sin and he has sat down at the right hand of God. So what is Jesus doing right now? He's seated at the right hand of God. But not only is he seated, Jesus is also interceding for us. Now to intercede for someone means to intervene on their behalf. And the Bible tells us that following the fall of humanity into sin, we need someone to intervene, intercede, mediate between us and God. God is a holy God and we are not a holy people. We have broken God's law. We've sinned against God. We need a mediator. And in the Old Testament, this was done by a figure called the high priest. On one day a year, the day of atonement, the high priest would purify and cleanse himself with water. He'd wear special clothes and garments. He would enter into the most holy place, the presence of God. He would confess sin and he would offer the sacrifice of an animal. And he'd plead with God to have mercy and to forgive his people. Now in the New Testament, Jesus is called our high priest forever, Hebrews 6 verse 20. He is the eternal mediator between God and his people. And Jesus too has cleansed himself, but with a life of perfect obedience to God. He too has clothed himself, but not with special garments, with flesh and bone. Jesus has offered a sacrifice, but not with the blood of an animal, but with his own. And through his sacrificial death on the cross, he's once and forever taken away our sin. That's why he's sitting down, he's ascended into heaven, and he's interceding before God on your behalf. Look at what Hebrews chapter 7 tells us. Hebrews 7 says the former priests were many in number. There was lots of different high priests because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, they had the same issue that we have. We keep dying. But he holds, this is Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently. Because why? Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is in heaven right now and he always lives to make intercession before God for you and for me. Now let me tell you what this doesn't mean. And this is the way I kind of used to think about it when I was a bit younger. I used to think that what it means that Jesus intercedes for us is that Jesus would go into a the heavenly courtroom, and he'd have a file marked A Shoemaker. And he'd say, OK, Father, you know, I'm here again about that Shoemaker guy. I know, I know, he's a bit of a doofus, but I'd really like for you to give him just one more chance. Come on, God, just one more chance. Pretty please? I mean, deep, 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 deep down, he's a pretty good guy. You know, one more chance. I mean, you owe me, Father. I, I kind of went to earth and, and everything. You remember that? And so, deep down, I'd kind of wonder when God's patience would run out. You know, I'd sin for like the 500th time, and God'd be like, oh, this guy again, that's it, I've had enough, he's not getting it, he's out, I don't want to see a bar of him anymore. See, I kind of had this picture that Jesus kind of has to twist God's arm to, to try and forgive us and to try and make him love us. And that's not the picture at all. Jesus is not our kind of fatigued defence lawyer. He is our eternal high priest. He is our total and complete saviour. And he is fixed at the right hand of God interceding for us. In fact, that's what verse 25 says. It says that he is able to save to the uttermost. Now, you could translate that word uttermost as completely or fully or for all time. He is able to save for all. All time those who draw near to God through Him. I love what Rankin Wilborn says about this. He says, talking about Jesus, not only did He stand in your place 2,000 years ago, He now stands in your place before God the Father. That means God's benevolence, God's love, God's kindness towards you is as sure as Christ being fixed at God's right hand. And get this, and He will not be moved. You see, you thought God's love towards you. It rises upon the tides of your obedience and, and your goodness. It's fixed because Christ is fixed at God's right hand. And then you understand this. This truth draws you out in love and obedience towards God and it fills your life with hope. But not only is Jesus our high priest, he's also our sympathetic high priest. Jesus is also in heaven and he's sympathising with us. Look at this profound truth that we read in Hebrews chapter 4. We read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. But what's the difference? Yet he did not sin. Now, if you were going to climb Mount Everest, You would want a guide that had climbed Mount Everest, wouldn't you? If you're kind of halfway up the mountain and you turn to your guide and you discover that he's never climbed a mountain before, let alone Mount Everest, you're going to start to get nervous. You want someone who knows the terrain, who knows the challenges, who has the resources and the know-how to help you. And it's the same for our journey in life, isn't it? And this is why the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was made like us in every respect. Hebrews 2. This is why we're told that Jesus Christ has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, really? Does Jesus really understand what it's like for me? I mean, how can Jesus really understand my struggle with sin if he never committed any sin? Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. This is so profound. C.S. Lewis says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. And we all said amen. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means we have a guide through life who knows exactly what it's like and exactly what we go through. You pray to a God who has felt everything you could ever feel, who knows what the lure of temptation is like, who knows what it's like to be tired and hungry and to weep, who knows the experience of betrayal and rejection, who knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back by friends, To be single long after the rest of his friends got married. Who knows what it's like when a loved one dies. You pray to a God who understands. And because he understands, wherever we find ourselves in life, we can go to him and find help. This is why the very next verse in Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Let us then approach God's throne of grace. With confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus Christ is with us on the journey of life. He's interceding before God for us, He's sympathising with us in our weakness, He understands what we're going through. But He's also at the finish line of the race, cheering us on and waiting for us. Because he has blazed the trail for us. In Hebrews 6 we read this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That is into the very presence of God. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You see, Jesus Christ has blazed the trail for us to enter into the presence of God. This is why Jesus is described as a forerunner. He's gone ahead of us. He's made a place for us in the presence of God. And again, I love what Rankin says about this. Listen to this carefully. He says, when he ascended to heaven, Jesus imported flesh and blood for the first time into those heavenly precincts. He paved the way for us so that when we arrive later, no one will be shocked that the likes of us were invited to this party. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this but Jesus Christ still has his physical body. Jesus sits at the right hand of God in heaven in his glorified physical body. And this means what Arrhenius, one of the early church fathers, said when he says, A hand like your hand shall throw open the gate of new life to thee. We shall be greeted by a face that has a form we recognise. Jesus has blazed the trail into the presence of God for you and for me. So where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. What is Jesus doing right now? He's seated. His atoning work is finished. He's interceding for us on behalf, on our behalf. He's sympathetic to us. He understands our struggles and what we're going through. And he's blazed the trail for us. He's preparing for us a place In heaven. So you might think that talking about Jesus and being in heaven, it's a bit out there, it's a bit heavenly minded, it has no earthly good for us right now. But what could give you more hope as you go from here today? Knowing that Jesus has atoned for your sin. It's finished. Knowing that Jesus is interceding for you. Knowing that he understands what you're going through. And that is waiting at the finish line to receive you. Our union with Christ fills us with hope. It covers our past. It fills our present with power and purpose. And our future with hope. Our union with Christ helps us on this long, difficult journey of life. And it fills us with hope. So let me ask you as I close. Are you united to Christ? I don't mean are you religious and do you come to church. I mean, have you received Christ with the empty hands of faith? Have you received all that he freely offers to you? And friend, let me tell you, he freely offers himself to you. And when you receive him, you receive everything you could ever need. And he will change you from the inside out. For your good and for his glory. Why don't you close your eyes and join with me as I pray this prayer for us from Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Amén.